Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Today, I am here with Jeff Golden, and we're talking about the urgency of living more fulfilling lives. I cannot wait to dive into this topic today. You are listening to Creating Wellness from Within, a podcast devoted to helping you live your best life through self-care and wellness. In each episode, we strive to offer you actionable advice and tools to help you on your journey towards greater personal wellness. I am your host, Amy Zellmer. I am editor-in-chief of Midwest Yoga and Life magazine and the author of The Chair Yoga Pocket Guide. I am passionate about yoga, wellness, photography, travel, and all things glittery. You can learn more about excuse me, more about me at creatingwellnessfromwithin.com. Today my guest is Jeff Golden, and he is the author of Reclaiming the Sacred: Healing Our Relationships with Ourselves and the World, winner of the Grand Prize at the Nautilus Book Awards. He has been teaching and writing about these topics for over 30 years, most recently at Vassar College. He was a Fulbright Scholar in Sustainable Development and a recipient of the State Department's Millennium International Volunteer Award. He is a prison reform and animal rights activist and has headed several nonprofits promoting social justice, sustainability, and international education. A native of Idaho, he resides in the Mohicanatuck Valley in New York with his children, the river, and the stars. Welcome, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this since we first connected about possibly doing this uh, at least a month or two back. So thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for being here. I always appreciate everybody's time um, that they take to share with me and with my listeners. It's always just a really special time um, to get to chat with all of you wonderful guests on my podcast. So it's a pleasure. um, and I am going to be adding your your note about glitter to my bio for the future. I love that. <laughs> you know, it gets a chuckle every time, like, you know, in the past, you know, I've been podcasting forever. And folks who send a bio that has just like that little something in it, and it makes yeah. you remember them, right? Yeah, so. yeah. So if I copy you, that's the highest form of flattery, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Take it. Please do. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you. You sent me your book a while back, and I'm excited to kind of dive in. Um, You know, where would you like to start? So I'm just looking at the back cover, um, you know, and it says it starts with an overview of the science of happiness. Um, And I think that would be a great place to start if you'd like. I think so too. I, I love it. I forgot the title that um, I had come up with for talking with you was the one that really inspired me in the moment, the urgency of -hmm. living more fulfilling lives. And I look forward to diving into that. As soon as you said that, I just got all excited. But that'll be a nice, we can build up to why the urgency. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, So I would start by saying there are really two things that I explore in the first part of this book. And I should note that this book was over 10 years in the researching and the writing. And as much as I am present in the book, it really is built on the work of 
thousands of other people. I mean, there are about 1,500 citations at the end of the book. So when I talk about the science of happiness and the science of money and things like that, yes, I have contributed a lot in what I write here, but so much of it is really rooted in the research of many other people, very prominent people, most of them, uh, very well known. And the first part of the book really does look at the science of happiness. It looks at the things that most nourish human well-being. And in particular, it also takes a look at money and possessions as two critical things that really have a very limited impact on our well-being and yet have come to be so central in so many of our right. lives and in this society and we could say perhaps just this time that we live in even globally money and stuff have come to mean so much to so many of us and they generally undermine our well-being actually and so mm -hmm. it was very important that that be part of the exploration of the science of happiness. On the other hand, I do explore those things that do matter the most. And well, I could tell one story that actually kind of brings both those topics together. There was one study that was done by Ed Diner, one of the foremost people in the field of positive psychology. And um, he and his colleagues reviewed the well-being and the life circumstances of homeless people in India, in Calcutta, and homeless people in Oregon, in the United States, and one other place, I think, in the United States, I don't remember where. And what they found was that categorically, the homeless people in Calcutta lived objectively worse lives. Their access to food and shelter, the kinds of things that they were reporting, like um, someone close to them having died, um, health issues, things like that, overwhelmingly, their lives objectively were worse. And yet, they were happier than the homeless people in mm. Oregon and indeed scored on the positive scale of life satisfaction. And the one factor that they found was significant and different between the two and indeed was the number one thing that the people in Oregon said that they missed the most was basically human connections. The people in India had managed to maintain more of a connection with family and friends than people in the United States. And again, those homeless people in the United States, when they were asked before food and shelter or those kinds of security, just having more human connection was the number one thing they longed for. And what that points to is one of the critical factors in terms of the lives we build around us, which is relationships, our connections, especially with friends, family, yes, um, marriage, is known to boost happiness initially. And then over time, it has a sort of neutral effect, not necessarily sure. positive or negative. On average, it varies by person. Children, another one that um, it generally does, um, people score much higher um, in terms of some things like feeling like a sense of purpose and meaning sometimes. But overall happiness um, does not, improve. And in fact, in certain categories, it goes down. Someone once said, um, it enriches our lives in certain ways, but on all the other ways, our lives go to hell. And <laughs> we have no time for a lot of the yeah. things that do matter, including relationships with other people. So anyway, relationships, though, are one of the easiest, most objective measures we can use to look at someone's life and guess how happy they are, is the amount of time that they're spending with, with other people 
and the number and quality of friends that they have. And then, um, and then there's a whole other category of things that are internal to us that I could talk about, but why don't I, why don't I take a breath for a moment and see if you have any thoughts or comments so far? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just, that's so fascinating to me how um, the folks in India have less desirable living conditions than the U.S., but they're happier because they're more connected. And I do see that here, um, just even in Minneapolis in the homeless community. um, If you, if you ask them, most of them don't communicate with their families anymore. Um, And that's so unfortunate. And I can see where that has a profound effect on your happiness. Um, And, you know, talking about um, marriage and children, and I just did a podcast recently, um, you know, talking about how um, as parents, particularly moms, um, they're modeling to their children whatever it is. So if they're constantly busy, right? Like they're constantly stressed and busy, they're modeling that to their children. That that's how we're supposed to be. And so she very intentionally had to change and be more present in the moment and take time for her self-care. And originally she wasn't showing her kids her self-care. She was doing it behind Mm -hmm. closed doors. And then she was like, oh, they need to see this. Right. How do I want? And them I to just live? thought that was that that kind of tied in nicely with what we're talking about. Even it does, it does. It's it's a beautiful segue. Before I follow that, though, I want to go back to something you said initially, which is, you know, about people who don't necessarily have a lot materially and yet are living really wonderful lives. Mm-hmm. It does cut both ways, and it's something we want to be careful about in how we talk about poverty. For example, extreme poverty is known to generally undermine our well-being and is not to be romanticized. And yet the truth is that even people living in extreme poverty, even for them, there are factors more important than money and possessions. And even if they are going without food and shelter, as we already touched on, for example, if they have a, a certain quality of relationships in their lives, there's absolutely no reason that they still cannot be abundantly happy mm-hmm. and often are. And also often suffer some of the tremendous um, things that come along with poverty, you know, dislocation and health issues and things that do generally tend to undermine our well-being. So again, it's it's both of those. It's not to romanticize poverty or pretend that everyone's mm-hmm. just happy in poverty, but it's also to definitely not write off most of these people and most of our human ancestors for all of time who had very little in the way of human possessions and yet lived such rich lives in other ways, which which brings me to the other thing you were talking about, for example, how we parent. It has been found, it was Brene Brown, who was the first person that I read who had documented this, which is that the quality of our relationships with ourselves is the number one predictor for the well-being of our children. Mm-hmm. And that goes definitely beyond material things. And it maybe it it involves, but maybe even goes a little bit beyond questions of self-care, right? Taking time for ourselves and showing that kind of self-love is something we want to model. And even beyond that, we could perhaps say is, what are we doing in terms of how we nourish our own well-being on the inside? 
And I love that as a segue because, as I mentioned, there are factors internal to us that are actually more important than the factors outside money, possessions, circumstances, the work we do, even relationships. More important are factors of, we might say, personality. And some of these are genetically related, but they also, to a significant degree, are under our control, can be influenced. And these are questions of presence and gratitude, taking just having just enough time, which again goes back to what that mom was saying, right? Taking the time to just be present and notice things, be present with the kids, be present with ourselves. And that really important one of the quality of our relationship with ourselves and how we feel about ourselves. Especially in this society, one could one could argue perhaps globally, but especially in the society, uh, Brene Brown again has said that all of us live with a certain amount of shame. We've internalized negative things about ourselves, either actually right. things that were said to us or things we've just picked up on the culture that we think we're supposed to be a certain way. And we've we've taken on this baggage and we carry it with us everywhere. And it affects everything that we do, our relationships with everything um, from our lives and money and jobs to our friends and loved ones, and importantly, our children. And so taking the time to unravel some of those and find ways to just be a little more gentle and loving with ourselves is arguably the single most important thing we can do to nourish our own well-being. And as we pointed out, the well-being of our kids and so Mm -hmm. many people around us as well. Well, Jeff, this might be a good time to segue in to, um, you know, the urgency of living more fulfilling lives. And what caught my eye in your topic was the word urgency. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's dive into that a yes. little bit. And why yeah. do you see such a sense of urgency in this? Thank you. Again, you know, depending on who I'm talking with, I've I've sort of approached the book from different angles. And this was the first time I used that word, and it felt so good and right. I'm glad you're mm-hmm. bringing us back to that. Yeah. I want to speak to two things. The first is the urgency of what we each deserve for ourselves in our lives. I'm going to say again, in this society, in this time, largely globally, so many of us are living our lives to some degree as if we were on the edge of an ocean or at the top of a mountain or the edge of the Grand Canyon, and we have bags over our heads. Mm -hmm. It's largely an effect of the pace of our lives, but it is Mm -hmm. also very significantly the materialism. It is the focus on material possessions, which again has been shown in research over and over that the more importance we place on material things, Ed Diner, the one I quoted earlier, his, his most famous quote is that uh, materialism is toxic for happiness. And we live in one of the most materialistic societies on yeah. the planet yeah. and in all of time, which we can see it to a degree, but also we live in it to such a degree that often we do miss just how much of our lives is oriented around money and stuff. So part of the urgency here is that each of us is alive in this one time with our precious lives and every single person out there listening to this and everyone who's not deserves to live the richness and wonder and miraculousness of who they are and what this life and this world are. 
And so I, I think that there's tremendous urgency around that. I want people to be able to shift bit by bit or dramatically where they're putting their attention and and even how they think about their purpose in this world. The other part that, of course, is tremendously urgent is that this vast materialism and the emptiness that we're trying to fill with this materialism is fueling unprecedented destruction and violence in the world. We live in a time where, I mean, just I think the number one most obvious way is through global warming and the repercussions of that. But it's on many fronts. There are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been. And many of them are creating products like chocolate for us in the United States. And so much of that is hidden and yet is woven in to the materialism and what we and the corporations representing us are willing to do to get that money and that stuff. And of course, global warming and environmental destruction, we've seen two-thirds of the wildlife in the world um, disappear just in my lifetime. And that's just the beginning of what's going on. So there's tremendous urgency to that as well. And the beauty, the blessing of this moment and these two things is that what we're being called to is one and the same, to take those bags off our heads and awaken to the miracle of our lives and so much that we actually do have mm -hmm. within ourselves and around us that can nourish us so much more than these possessions that we try to fill that emptiness with. And that's exactly what we need to do in terms of this environmental destruction and global warming as well as, as, well as we need to step back from the consumption. And guess what? We can live much richer, wonderful lives. It sounds like sacrifice, but the truth is that it's an invitation to living better lives. Yeah. That's, that's the urgency, as I see it, is both of those. It's the collective and it's the individual. You know, talking about the people just with bags over their heads and mm -hmm. it's like, that's what I'm seeing. People are just rushing through life from one thing to the next and they're not taking time to enjoy the present moment, you know, like going back yeah. to the mom scenario and she's planning this child's Pinterest perfect birthday party. And then she's not even present at mm -hmm. the party. She's too mm -hmm. focused on making sure everything's going perfectly versus just you know, stepping back and being present in it. And yeah. I'm seeing that happen just everywhere with everyone. And I know about 10 years ago, <clears throat> I've always been self-employed. I've always been an entrepreneurial spirit. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, there's been times when I've been very broke. Um, and yeah. for me, being able to have my own schedule, do my own thing, travel when I want, I can work yeah. from anywhere. Yeah. For me, that was so much more valuable than yeah. having 10,000 in the in the savings account. And for other yeah. people, that's just like, <gasps> you know, yeah. it gives them yeah. anxiety to think that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is an individual thing and it is a collective thing. It is our society and the culture that we live in. And you know what I would just invite anyone out there who's listening to consider is uh, some people do make dramatic, huge changes in their lives. Um, just hearing ideas or seeing something, having some kind of experience. For many of us, it's going to be more just little steps here and there. And we are part of a massive wave that is pushing mm -hmm. us in a particular direction. And 
to to consider uh, to give something concrete for example for people to hold on to it's one thing to just know that money is not a significant factor in our happiness but what the research shows that it's between 2 and 4% of our happiness wow wow so when we are making these decisions we might intuitively know that buying that additional thing or taking on a little more work working longer hours those kinds of things we might in our minds know that well maybe it's not going to make that much of a difference but to just have something the research also shows that we are awful at predicting what will make us happy in terms of material things we always think that if we just had 50% more or twice yeah. as much money and this goes for people who are flat broke as well as millionaires yes right mm-hmm. consistently we think all we need is like 50 to twice as 50% to twice as much and then we'll be happy and when we get more it's still more that we think we need. Yeah. Our subjective sense of enough is completely skewed. But what objectively we know is that once we have our basic needs met on a very simple level, then we have all that we need materially to be as happy as we can be. And the more that we continue to prioritize money, it can still contribute a little bit to happiness. But generally right. speaking, what we're missing out on is an opportunity to actually live even more wonderful lives. As I mentioned before, even for people who are not meeting their basic needs, money and possessions still play a less significant role than many of these other factors. So mm-hmm. again, it doesn't need to be an all or nothing kind of thing and for many of us, you know, it's not an option to go back and live like our ancestors did for right. hundreds of thousands of years necessarily, but it is often possible to just make little daily decisions or the big decisions about where we're going to live, how much rent or mortgage do we really want to take on? You know, um, what additional things do we want to buy or have, or how much do we want to spend on a car? It can be those kinds of daily decisions where maybe it's just we ratchet it back one notch. We prioritize what really does nourish us and the people around us that we care about. You know, uh, 20 years ago in college, my my thesis was on non-monetary rewards in the workplace mm. and how, you know, employers think that their employees just want more money. Mm-hmm. But actually, if they give them more vacation time or more flexible schedule or the ability right. to work from home, these things have a much more profound effect on retaining an employee or keeping them happy um, than actual money. Right. Absolutely. And again, to just sort of sit in empathy, though, with people who are listening, it's to acknowledge that there is a little bit of a catch-22 and that we live in a society that is so oriented around that. (laughs) Many of us do feel caught in terms of how much we need to bring in. And so it's not to deny that reality, but it's just to have also a reality check of, we're living one wild and precious life. What do you want to do with yours? And what do you want for the people around you who you mm-hmm. care about? And you have the opportunity to orient yourself step-by-step step or dramatically more towards the Grand Canyon, the ocean, the mountain in front of us, and just keep pulling that bag back up a little bit, off and on up or more up, um, even while not beating ourselves up that Maybe we're in a situation where we literally are poor and just need to do what we can to get by. So a little empathy in both directions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you know, you're right. We live in a very capitalistic society and, and it takes money to survive, right? You need to pay rent. You need to pay for gas in your car. You need to put food on the table. Um, you know, when you're self-employed, there is some wiggle room with barter, you know, Mm -hmm. and trade. Mm -hmm. And, um, I know for many years I traded my haircuts and stuff for, um, in trade, right. For what I do. Um, and it's very rewarding to do trade and don't get me wrong. You can't trade everything. Right. Right, Um, but, um, like going back to what you said about our ancestors and living off the land and and they traded and bartered. Right. Um, and it is a catch 22. You do need money to survive in our society. Um, but absolutely it's not the root of all happiness. And categorically, the less we work, the happier we are. Now, again, I am speaking about an average. And for people who not by choice find themselves unemployed, that can have an impact on our happiness and well-being. And in fact, it's it's less about the income than it is about our egos and our sense of purpose. Mm, but right. that is true. But otherwise, consistently, people who work more than 40 hours a week are less happy than people who work 40. People who work 30 are happier than 40 all the way down to about like three to five hours a week. If you're able to do it financially, we are consistently happier the less that we work. It's again, just something to keep in mind because one of the compromises that some of us have to make sometimes is, well, and I guess my point is we don't have to make it, but the question is put to us, do you want to advance in this direction? Here's what we offer you. You'll make this much more money and these are the expectations. You'll be working this many more hours. And that is so consistently put forward in our society as a win. That's the direction to go. And your kids will be better off for it. You'll be better off. You'll be more secure. And it's a lie. It's a huge deception. We are not better off. We are also not more secure, again, unless we're living in extreme poverty. So again, we might be really drawn to that, but that might be one of those critical choice moments where you know, actually, I'm really good right where I am. I'm enjoying this. I'm working a lot or I'm not working so much, but I've got enough. And what kinds of things could I be doing with my life while I've while I've still got it and can just dive into this richness that's actually available here now? So, Jeff, what would be like your final thoughts for someone listening on like like what what we've been saying is resonating with them, but they don't really know where to start. Like what could be some baby steps on um, beginning to live a more fulfilling life? I mean, it is going to vary so much by person, but again, Ed Diner and his son, um, who is also a prominent positive psychologist, one of the things that they consistently urge people is to not um, to not burden themselves too much with thinking about major shifts. And that's why I mentioned some people out there are going to make major shifts when some of these ideas sink in, whether it's through this talk right now or some other place that it comes from. For a lot of us, though, it really is just going to be take the time to consider this. I mean, I'll go ahead and say, whether it's my book or another book, find a way to be a little bit more immersed in these kinds of ideas Mm -hmm. and ways of thinking so that it becomes a little bit more part of your daily routine so that when you're making those decisions, large or small, there's just a slight more tip in that other direction. And again, that might have to do with the kind of work that we're doing, the number of hours that we're doing. It might have to do with recognizing that um, one of the things that really um, 
creates the strongest pull towards money and stuff is an absence of those things that really matter. So in that moment when we're feeling, say, scared or insecure, maybe we had a bad day, and the inclination is to go and buy something or making a decision about buying something when we're feeling that way, to just recognize that, okay, buying stuff in the past I know has maybe made me happy for five minutes or an hour, and then it doesn't last. And this research everyone's talking about consistently tells me that once again, me buying this is not going to actually make me happy. It's a chance to stop and maybe not take that plunge Mm -hmm. and see what starts to happen as we just day by day, step by step, lean the other direction and find ourselves maybe sitting with the loneliness a little bit or reaching out to someone as a result of not just buying something or diving into some other kind of experience. So it might be just those little shifts that come. And I will say again, I I would urge everyone, even if it's just the library, but get a copy of my book. I spent over 10 years collecting this wisdom. There's a lot in there and see what speaks to you. See what doors open for you in different chapters. Just open it up and see what, what calls to you. Or again, keep listening to this podcast and things like it where you're immersing yourselves in in ways that really are radical and counterculture compared to the mainstream orientation towards money and stuff and purpose as being consumption. Um, You know, you mentioned the library and I always like to give the hot tip that your library will order a book. So if they don't have it or it's not in their system and you request it, they will purchase it and put it into the system. Um, And you may have to go on Amazon to find the ISBN number. They do need that Mm -hmm. when they're purchasing Mm it, Um, but they will get it. And I always offer that as a hot tip for folks who maybe can't afford a book or just don't want the clutter, right? Some people don't like to accumulate books anymore. Um, And they do it for audio books as well and eBooks. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, very much in the spirit of what we're talking about, you know, that that thing about go out and steal this book. That, that was the na- title of a book in the 60s, steal this book. <laughs> yep. I'm not saying steal my book, but I am saying <laughs> if you can live simply and save a little bit of money by getting yep. this book in the library, that's what I care about is people getting to, again, it's the urgency of each of us living more fulfilling, rich lives and being part of the broader shift that has to take place. Well, Jeff, this has been such a great conversation. Um, I do want to take a moment to make sure we mention your website, which is reclaimingthesacred.net. And as always, wherever you're listening, there's a clickable link in the show notes. Um, But tell us a little bit about what folks can find on your website. Uh, I'm guessing they can probably purchase your book there if they would like. They can absolutely purchase the book. The other thing I would say, though, is that There's a Ukrainian artist who created, it's just under nine minutes, a video based on the central ideas of the first part of this book, those things that really do matter and what we're doing to the planet and what the opportunities are. It's a lovely video. And that's one of the first things that you see when you go on there. And yes, the book is available at Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And also it's available through the distributors that libraries use. So if your library doesn't already have it, request it and they will get it for you. And you can read the paperback copy or an e-copy, or you can listen to me reading it, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's me in my closet was the best acoustics <laughs> that I could I get without I paying for a studio. Turned out great. So you can imagine Jeff in his closet reading this book to you. If that if that's a draw to you as well, that's available. 
Did you have a blanket like over your head and your microphone? No, but I'm surrounded by clothes and a sleeping bag and such. And I also do uh, teach a course, an online course that's six weeks that I hope to offer again this winter. I haven't for a good year because I've been so focused on the book, but there's information about that there too, if anyone feels drawn to that. Wonderful. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being here today. This has been lovely. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Jeff Golden. Please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you're listening to help others on their wellness journey discover this podcast. And be sure to head to MidwestYogaLife.com and join our email list to stay in the know of upcoming events, the yoga conference, and so much more. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day, and I'll see you in the next episode.